last year in 2016, we did a research project here at Tech Emergence where we polled 35 AI researchers, many of whom have some experience in the private sector, and asked them, what are the critical factors to getting real ROI out of an artificial intelligence project? If a business is going to leverage artificial intelligence, what are they going to need to actually see a return? And the answers we garnered mapped very well to the interview that we go into today. You guys can find that original research on the research tab at the top of techemergence.com and look for the AI ROI infographic that we put together with all the various researcher perspectives. This week we speak with another artificial intelligence researcher slash business person. Larry Lefferty is a team member at a company called Trius, which is the company that sort of flew me down here to Atlanta, where I am recording this intro right now to interview a number of AI experts in this space. He's a team member with Trius, which is an AI company here in Atlanta, as well as a executive at a number of different artificial intelligence sort of projects here in the Atlanta area. He also works with Georgia Tech's software development and artificial intelligence incubator down in the Atlanta area as well. And Larry, for the last 30 years or so, has been building large artificial intelligence projects for DARPA, for different military organizations, as well as for different organizations in the private sector, in other spaces and domains outside of military. And Larry has a lot of experience with what it takes in the last 30 years or so to get a large organization that is very much not used to leveraging artificial intelligence to be able to use it fruitfully and actually garner an ROI. There's a lot of friction and a lot of points to prevent an existing company that's not used to leveraging AI to find its data and get the right talent, orchestrate all the factors and features. And Larry goes into the three critical factors, in his opinion, to getting an existing organization to get the most out of an artificial intelligence application. So if you're a company that's maybe not used to AI, but you're contemplating what it might look like to re-up your customer service function, your marketing function, leverage AI in an area that might really matter in your business, this should be a pretty critical bit of insight as to how to make that work. And if you're on the vendor side and you're selling artificial intelligence, I think this will be an introduction to some of the harsh realities Larry's run into in getting enterprise to adopt artificial intelligence and some of the struggles with data and with talent to actually make some of these projects happen. So a lot of color on a lot of very important topics around AI adoption, and I hope you all enjoy this one. Larry, first things first that I want to get into, for decades now, you've been plugging in sort of artificial intelligence systems into government agencies and into private companies. And I know full well that there are some huge challenges in getting a company that isn't sort of AI friendly, so to speak, or hasn't done this in the past to sort of adopt these advanced technologies. And this has sort of been your mainstay for decades now. What have been some of the core lessons of getting AI to click in existing enterprise? Well, first, you make it sound like it's been such a long time, decades. <laughs> I guess it has. It has. But it doesn't seem like that. All right, right. So you're right. I've done some work in, in the government space. I've also done some work in the commercial space. I think there are three lessons learned that I could suggest. The first is pretty obvious, but it's easy to overlook, and that is that you really have to understand your problem, and you have to understand why the solution to your problem is compelling. So a number of years ago, we built some software for the Air Force to help Air Force planners plan missions. It's a great system, spent a lot of time on it, the government spent a lot of money on it. We installed the system, trained the users, 
and then went back three months later and discovered that they were using the whiteboard to plan. There's an issue there. Apparently that system really didn't address the need that people had. And so that system or that particular project would have been better if we had a clearer understanding of what the real compelling need was. And just to poke into that a little bit, this is certainly a, a lesson that has been hearkened to on a number of, of occasions. When you say to make sure that this is a compelling solution, that is to say, okay, what are we ultimately trying to solve for? And you know, does AI necessarily fit the bill as the best way to spend money and the best way to deliver a result here? Is that kind of what you're... Well, I'm at? partly saying that. I'm, I'm also partly saying that if you start with AI towards technology, you're probably making a big mistake. I think you have to start, first of all, what the compelling need is. So I'm involved with a startup engineering program called Flashpoint. Yep. And one of the things we talk about in Flashpoint is that you have to identify the authentic demand for a product or service. So what is it that people just absolutely have to have that they can't do without? You know, maybe you can address problems that you've either worked on or that you can use as representative examples of and identifying of sort of the right problem. You, know, you mentioned the planning one with the whiteboards where, well, clearly this didn't work. And then maybe other times it's kind of hit the nail on the head. But I think the compelling need, what, what you're getting at is something pretty deep, right? It's not just kind of what's the, the current pain and the whiz-bang idea that comes to mind. But I would presume this involves some serious deep diving before you want to invest all the time in, in building something out. What, what does that look like in real life? Well, I think in real life, you could probably spend a couple of months and talk to dozens, if not maybe a hundred people who are in that particular domain to really get an understanding of what people need. And it may not be obvious. People may not be able to really articulate what they need. And so you may have to talk to a lot of people in order to begin to infer what would make the big difference. It's not necessarily obvious. And well, this is kind of the big thing with startups today, right? The, the lean startup idea that you should do a tremendous amount of customer search and find some kind of a dire need and tinker with and experiment with a number of things and see how people respond to them because you likely have a bunch of assumptions at the point of having zero conversations and even at the point of having 10 conversations, which is better than zero, that will just be shattered by some future reality of like, that's not actually it. That's, that's not exactly really right. the problem. And I think the problem that we have as technologists is that we really get excited by new toys. So if we have a new capability, a new algorithm, a new library. We just want to use it somehow. And we always think that's a pretty neat thing to do. And it may not have any value at all to an ordinary user. Are we permitted to speak about the pilot's associate thing? Sure, sure. Abstractly? Okay, yeah. so I know this is kind of one of your initial forays into AI was building sort of an assistive agent to a pilot in, in a plane. Instead of having two people in an airplane, having one who's aided by a machine. Because that did become full-blown deployed, if I'm not mistaken, and maybe evolved into other things. It, it evolved into other things. So basically, the pilot's associate was developed starting in the mid-80s through the early to mid-90s. This was a DARPA research project. Yep. And the problem at that time was that there had been so many advances in avionics systems and in weapon systems for aircraft, that pilots were spending more time managing systems than keeping heads up in the cockpit and keeping your eyes open and knowing what's around you is kind of critical when you're in air-to-air -air combat. Yep. So the research emphasis was to figure out a way to replace one of the persons in a two-person fighter with an intelligent system. And so, and this eventually did evolve into something that is. This constant. evolved into 
you know, they wouldn't call it the Pilots Associate now, but concepts, pieces, and parts of the Pilots Associate, I think, ended up in modern avionics systems for aircraft. Yeah. So we looked at a lot of things related to the design of um, cockpit interfaces so that pilots see exactly what they need at the right time. We looked at automated mission planners. We looked at low observable planners. We looked at systems for monitoring internal aircraft status, for monitoring external threats and so on. I think the challenge then was to be able to integrate all of those systems together so that you had a single associate that would act as a partner with the pilot. And so one of the key research goals for the pilot's associate was to figure out how you could have a blended human-machine system. Yeah, which clearly transfers to much more than just pilots, right? I mean, people have to work with AI systems to get them to kind of get where they want to go in many industries. I imagine that this first point that you're addressing, which I really wanted to shed some color on with a real example, understanding your problem, I imagine maybe you could speak a bit to some of the deeper homework that had to go into, okay, this is DARPA. Sure, we have a lot of money, but we don't spend it like buffoons. What are going to be the real nuts we're trying to crack here, not just the toys to play with? What had to go into what you're building out in a system that big? Well, the Pilots Associate was a knowledge-based system, meaning that we spent a lot of time building a cognitive engine and building knowledge bases that represented how pilots engage in air-to-air combat. So we had a team of domain experts who were part of the program, and I was involved. I actually ran the tactics planner part of that. And so we we had session after session after session where we worked with the pilots to understand air-to-air combat. So in effect, what happened over the course of the program is that my development team came to know an awful lot about air-to-air combat. And that is kind of a message that I've seen repeated in multiple systems that I've built in order to have a good development team. Those folks really need to absorb the domain. Yeah, and that's the big gripe, right? It's like you have your your super-duper AI expert folks, but the domain experts aren't even sure the right way to communicate with these people. These folks don't know enough about AI to communicate the points that are important. These folks don't know enough about the subject matter maybe to build the right things. And it sounds like you guys have obviously tried to crack that by doing as much cross-pollination. Yeah, there's a lot of cross-pollination. I think one of the misconceptions about building AI systems is that it's all about AI. And in fact, building a system involves an awful lot of integration work, just simple plumbing to get data to and from the places that it needs to go. It also involves a lot of human interface design, putting together the right foundational pieces, the the concepts for the user interface, the plumbing to get the data and so on. That takes an awful lot of time and really building the intelligence, maybe it's a quarter of the effort, but it certainly isn't 80% of the effort. Good point to note, I think, right? Because otherwise it's possible for you as a machine learning expert out of college to say, well, I could walk into this finance firm and just do machine learning and solve some of their problems, right? And, and of course, that doesn't exactly end well. And so there's so much of this, again, like you said, there's so many plumbing and other considerations, and there's so much crisscross of relevant knowledge to make sure we're really solving the root problem that the brunt AI coding is not maybe necessarily most of the work here. It's not most of the work. Yeah. Yeah. It's just part of the work. But it's 
the part that we get enamored of as technologists because it's a cool toy. Yeah, yeah. I think people should get pretty enamored about results and then do whatever it Absolutely. takes to get to those, right? So lesson number two from all your time in both public and private sector here, making AI click in existing enterprise. What else have you learned? Well, we talked a minute ago about domain experts yeah, on yeah, the pilots yeah. associates. So we had a team of pilots, people who had actually been in combat, and we spent a lot of time working with those domain experts. So I think the key to building an AI system is to have access to domain knowledge. On the pilots associate, we had pilots on the team. We built a system recently with Trios for the oil and gas industry. And the problem in that particular case was to monitor the operation of a particular kind of oil well. We actually had a domain expert who was our champion within one of the companies. And so we worked really closely with him to learn about production engineering. The odd thing about domain expertise is that you would think in a company that you would be able to get to domain experts. But in fact, lots of times the domain experts that you would really like to work with are so valuable that you can't get much of their time. And so what we have done on several occasions is to go out and hire our own domain experts so that we have access in-house to the knowledge we need. Yeah, so the client company at Oil & Gas, for example, they might not be able to have their engineers time all the time, but you might just pay a guy with that knowledge and say, your job is to sit here and tell us whatever you know. Yeah, then basically our domain expert then can work with the company's domain expert at kind of a low bandwidth and, yep. and we can get the job done. But it, I just don't think it's safe when you start a project just to make the blanket assumption that you're going to get to the best domain experts because they're going to be really busy. Well, this is a great point because to make the assumption, as it turns out, is not a good assumption to make. That's awesome. You mentioned something great that I think is a, possibly a good take-home lesson here. Let's say you're moving into aviation or you're moving into telecommunications infrastructure, you're moving into marketing analytics, whatever it is, the best marketing analytics person at that company that you're moving in this application with may not be able to just be hanging out with you. But if you can have a similar kind of expert, then like you said, they can communicate at a relatively low bandwidth because That's they right. have kind of proxies of the same knowledge. And then you can spend a lot of time with the guy that you hire, but the person on their team so it's an extra expense, it's an extra head, but this guy gets to stay focused on the core company with just a little bit of communique with you and with the other experts. So maybe it cuts his time, you know, 80% off of the time he'd have to spend. Sure. Okay. Yeah, another way to say this is that if you're in a software engineering company or an AI company and you decide to build an application for a client, then you're going to have to go all in and become knowledgeable about that particular client's vertical market. In other words, you've got to commit if you're building a financial system to knowing about finances or if you're building oil and gas systems, you have to go to the conferences and learn about that particular domain. So you really have to absorb that knowledge. Got it. So the way to distill that second insight is this just to ensure that by your own consultant or by the people in-house or a combination of the two, you have consistent access to the domain experts that are going to help you get to that root problem and solve that root problem. Is that yeah, exactly. the takeaway? Yeah. Okay, that's yeah, that's a takeaway. And then I think using oil and gas as an example, when I was working in oil and gas, I went to 
a lot of the oil and gas conferences. I committed to publishing papers about AI at those conferences. I went to a lot of workshops and training sessions so that I could really speak knowledgeably with people in the industry. So I tried to become legitimate as in, space, a, yeah. a, in that particular space. I'd never pretend to be an expert, but I wanted to at least be able to speak and understand the language. Certainly. You know, what's funny about this, before we get into our last point, which I'm very curious about, is that commonly now, you know, the idea of machine learning is, hey, we're not baking in human insight. We're going to learn from the data, which is going to be maybe closer to ground truth than what the humans think it is and such and such and such. And clearly there's some serious merit there in some regards. Like, you know, you ask a human 400 ways that they identify a dolphin from a tuna fish. You try to bake that into a system, probably not going to be as good as deep learning in terms of finding a dolphin in a picture. So, you know, hard baking that into that situation, probably not right. But clearly you could see how in oil and gas, you know, there's things other than the data, like there's the contextual knowledge. It's, this isn't like, oh, get the human to tell you all the rules to bake in. No, that's not the point from what I'm gathering from you. The point is, well, yes, these numbers are important, but unless we understand what this knob is doing and what the pressure is here and how much oil is still in there, sure. we don't know if it's worth the business effort to get this done. So there's this contextual stuff. It's not just well, the human laying out rules is never going to be better than machine learning. It's like, well, maybe it's not, but we need to know when that's relevant based on all these other parts. It seems like domain expert is not just the person who tells you the exact things to program, but who describes the possibility space and describes the problem in a way that gives you the context to solve it. Yeah, I, th um, I think one of the words that you use, you use the word better, is kind of a slippery term. Yeah, it's a term right. we'd all like to use, but it's hard to know what is better. And just to give you a bit of an example, Yeah. at first blush, you might say, a better answer is an optimized answer. And you'd think, well, okay, I, I have the optimal answer. But in fact, having the optimal answer lots of times is impossible. In the oil and gas domain we were working in, there was a lot of inherent error in the data. Yeah. Sensors would go bad, they would be miscalibrated and things like that. So the better answer wasn't an answer that you could generate blindly through a machine learning algorithm, it was actually the answer which provided a production engineer with guidance about the things he ought to consider. So this is, again, the notion of a human machine system and decision support rather than just dumping an answer out. Yeah. I, I think if I'm not mistaken from what I know about the oil and gas application that you folks had is that sometimes we don't want to optimize the profitability of extracting X amount of oil on like a profit margin basis, sometimes our main <clears throat> demand is just volume of oil and we need to know how much we can pump out at what volume. And, sure. and there's going to be some sales deal that happened that decides that. It's not in the damn data. It's in some contract yeah, and, exactly. and in some salesman's yeah. head. And it's like you probably can't bake all of that in until we get the general intelligence here, at which point we probably don't have to worry about our jobs anymore. So, okay, cool. That, that throws some context on it because I think People often think, well, you know, too much on the subject matter expertise. Hey, this isn't the old school expert systems world anymore. This is something different. But still, there's so much to glean from all that context in the human skull that's not just can they read a data better or whatever the case exactly. may be. Speaking of data, I know that's sort of what your third point touches on. How do you kind of nutshell the third of these three main points in making AI click in existing enterprises? So I think I mentioned a minute ago that 
building an intelligent system is more than just having an algorithm or a cognitive engine. That one of the key tasks is to integrate with external data sources, databases, or whatever. I thought for a number of years that getting data for a project ought to be easy. And in fact, it's really, really, really hard for all sorts of unexpected reasons. So I can think of at least three examples where companies assured us that getting data would not be a problem, and it turned out to be a serious problem. To give you an example, quick story, we were working with a large multinational oil company. This company was headquartered overseas, and then they had a a U.S. office in New Orleans. So we started the project and asked for data. And of course, since our contract was with headquarters, we said, headquarters, can you get us some data? And they said, well, of course, get the data from New Orleans, the U.S. office. And the answer we got from New Orleans was, no way, we're not going to give you the data. It belongs to us. It doesn't belong to headquarters. It belongs to the U.S. And we don't want to give you the data. So it took us months, actually, to get access to the data we needed just to begin building a system. You wouldn't expect that kind of problem as a technologist, but it happens over and over again. Yeah. There seems to be this challenge frequently with access to data, particularly from the physical world. You mentioned in oil, well, your sensor goes bad or it goes dead or whatever the case may be. It's not going to get plugged in automatically again. You know, there's going to have to be whenever someone goes back up there, the right engineer knows how to do it. So there's these gaps and these, these hiccups. I think one of the advantages of sort of the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Googles of the world is that basically the universes that they're functioning in are digital universes where sensors are everywhere. Like you don't have to install an effing sensor on your browser window. You just know exactly where the damn mouse is at all times with no exceptions. You know where all the clicks are. You know, everything is instrumented as a giant sensor that with some exceptions has less issues of breaking than the one in the well or whatever else. And so those folks have kind of this advantage of existing in digitally tracked universes where everything is a sensor. While you're working in oil, it's not that easy. There's not only issues of data quality, but there are issues related to data ownership. So oh, yeah, talk about those. So the example I used a minute ago where the New Orleans the U.S. office basically said it's our data, it's not headquarters. That was a big, big deal because they claimed ownership and they did not want to surrender that data. Later on in that project, when we got to a testing phase, this is actually the well monitoring system. When we started asking for test data, our customer told us that, well, we have test data, but it's actually owned by other people and we can't share it with you. Even though we process the data for them, it doesn't belong to us, so you'll have to make up your own test data. So there are issues of ownership. There are issues related to competitiveness. A lot of organizations, even within a single company, see the data that their organization produces as a competitive advantage, even if it's a competitive advantage within the company. That, so that just seems counterproductive it, to me. Well, it is counterproductive, but, but not, it happens all the time. We're not going to solve corporate bureaucracy in this podcast, I don't think. But it sounds like, you know, it's a reality. Of no, these are realities, exactly. Yeah, it's counterproductive. I wouldn't argue with that, but what are you Those are the kinds do? of problems you run into. Yeah. What are you going to do? You, well, get rid of the humans, I think, is what you do. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of hard to do. <laughs> no, no, in, in all seriousness. But 
But yeah, so people have to factor for that. Assuming that you're going to go in and the data is going to be well organized, no. Assuming that they're going to own it, no. Assuming that even if it's in the company's best interest, that department's going to let you have it, maybe no. That and, all these are and, and what that means for you is that particularly at the beginning of a project, you need to be willing to synthesize enough data to prove the value of the system you're building so that you actually can get to the real data. Yeah. When you've gone into a number of different companies to build out solutions, I know you can talk about some and maybe not others, but when you go in and it seems like by your you know third time around, it's probably pretty quick to the chase in assessing the problem. Okay, well, this appears to be the problem here. You know, This appears to be kind of where we could go. Let's talk really quick up front about can we get the data we need to even make this happen? But you'd hate to figure that out two months deep and, and that like it's going to be impossible to get access to it, right? That's hard. It doesn't matter. You can have the discussion. Oh, good gracious. Yeah. And yeah, damn it. everybody can agree that the data is going to be important and you can start the process of getting the data. And there just aren't any guarantees that you're going to be able to get it. What do you think is going to be the way that that changes? So you and I are talking now about something you have a lot of experience in, again, bringing AI into existing enterprises. Enterprise of the future, it seems like what will have to be the case, I mean, you can't go in and change all of them. Nobody can. No, Accenture can't go in and change all of them. IBM can't go in. There will be, it seems like, either you know a dying off of some companies or an evolution where they're able to pool and route and make accessible data as a critical part of everything that they're doing. It's like under all functions that, that there's a routing and organizing and orchestration of data. Otherwise, it just doesn't seem like AI is going to fit any role. And at some point, if you're a big enough company at manufacturing or whatever, if it fits no role, maybe you're in hot water five years from now, 10 years from now. Is that the necessary evolution? Well, no, that's, that's an interesting question. I'm not very optimistic that organizations are going to be able to make big changes with respect to how data are organized and accessed. I just think that's that's such a difficult problem and it's so expensive that I don't think most companies are going to be willing to spend the money. So I, yeah. so I think what we have to be willing to do, I think you could do a couple of things. First of all, when you scope a system, you need to scope functionality with an eye towards the data you really can get to and do the best you can. And part of that is building incrementally. So build functions that you can support with the data that you can get to first and then kind of grow the system. But I think that we have to be willing as AI practitioners to integrate with a lot of different sources and a lot of different algorithms in a lot of different ways. So we have to recognize that integration is a good part of what we do. We just have to suck it up. This is the big issue that, that I see in the vendor space. You're touching on such an important point is that you know we talk to so many people selling marketing, healthcare diagnostics, you name it. I mean, all these different fields. The gripe is that you know we're trying to run pilots, we're trying to get case studies, we're trying to shape results out of these companies, but the integration, the process time to get initial applications to click in an existing business is freaking hard. And so case studies are not flying out the back of these enterprises because the integration, the pilots, and the tinkering is so darn involved that it's going to be a little while before we have a ton of awesome customer service provable use cases, a ton of marketing provable use cases, right? It's, you know, people are spending all their time untangling those rat's nests and plugging into 50 places, it sounds like. You've highlighted a problem which represents a real danger for people who want to build systems. It's typical when you go into an organization to get funding for a project because you've identified a champion. Someone in that organization who has enough political clout and enough access to funding 
so that you can actually get a project started. The unfortunate reality is that good people move around, particularly up the ladder in big organizations. So it's not uncommon. I've seen this happen both in the government world and on multiple commercial projects. You'll find your champion, you'll get a project started, and then a year into the project, your champion will move on, and then you are in trouble. Oh, man, yeah. Because you don't have anybody who can vouch for you within the organization. These are real concerns. These are real You know, for those of our listeners who are tuned in who are fearful about the singularity, you're very fortunate that it will be pushed at least, you know, five or ten years off by the kludge of the enterprise that AI can't even develop through because of all these various political sure. and data. And other, it's just that AI itself just won't be able to advance in the real world in fighting through this fog. And I think companies are going to have to die and some companies are going to reorganize how they do their data. But it sounds like to you, you're not optimistic about your reorganization of data, that it's going to be a slug fest and maybe the new companies that start off the ground right are going to be the winners more than counting on the dinosaurs turning it around. Yeah, I'm not pessimistic about what we can do today or what we may be able to do in the future. I just don't think it's necessarily going to be easy. It's, it's going to be tough and we just need to be mature about yeah. it and work through the issues. We'll end on that note, Larry, because we're right on time, but I think that's a point worth chewing on for the audience. If you're buying this stuff, prepare for it to be hard. And if yeah. you're selling this stuff and integrating it, prepare for it to be hard. And make sure that you're picking the right problem because otherwise it's going to be too much of a fight to want to put up with. It sounds like that's a good end cap to me. So, All right. Larry, I appreciate Thank you. you joining us here. I Thank enjoyed so it. Much. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence and over at techemergence.com you can find actionable industry specific coverage including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, most of our podcast listeners get our, the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. Uh, I'm Dan Figella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you.